Hi, I'm Jacqueline. And I'm Courtney, and this is Caffeinated Crimes. Welcome to our first Take Two episode. So, mm-hmm. kind of a part two, but like kind of a redo. Here's some more information. A revisited. Revisited. I like that. Yes. So, this is our first time doing this. Um, we may do it for other episodes if other information comes to light. So, um, but we do have an update before we get into the episode, so just just hang on to that. Uh, it's coming, as you can probably see by the episode title. Maybe you don't look at the episode title. Do you just, like, play it and like have no idea? it's impossible to not look at it. I mean, maybe you could. I, I mean, guess I would. I do, put, I do, like, the ones I listen to, like, I'll just hit play, and I don't really, like, 100% fully pay attention, you know? Like, yeah. I'm like... Oh, my favorite murder released, which they don't put the titles, but like morbid. I'm like, oh, it's something. I'll just hit play. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I know I like, I'll like line up like a queue in like Apple Podcasts where I'm like, okay, let me listen to, and like I'll mix up like murder and non murder and like funny and sad. And, you know, so I don't mm-hmm. have like six things in a row that are super depressing. So I'll just like do that, you know, however often. And I'll line up like 15 or 20 episodes or something. So it's like, by the time I get to the episode, I may not remember what the name was. So, you know, I don't know. You let us know how you do that. But our update um, is a local one to me. Um, So this is in the Harrisonburg area in Virginia. Um, We apparently have had a serial killer on the loose who has killed who knows how many people. So um, Anthony Robinson was arrested this past week for the deaths of Elizabeth Redman and Tonita Larice Smith. Um, so their remains were found in a shopping cart in a vacant lot in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Um, he is also the prime suspect in two other similar deaths, um, all tied into this shopping cart that is apparently his method of disposing of the bodies. So this is like his like signature like he would like move. transport them, which is yep. like... Now, kind of, I feel like if I see people who, like, walk with, like, shopping carts and there's, like, a bunch of mm-hmm. stuff in them, I'm like, what's, what's in, in there? there? Which, <laughs> I mean, like, it's kind of smart if, like, you, I mean, I don't know how they, I don't know if they were in, like, a trash bag or something, but it's like, you see people with, like, big bags of stuff just walking mm-hmm. down the street with shopping carts, so why would you think, I don't know, yeah. don't get any ideas if that's something you were going to do, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, uh, pretty creepy and pretty crazy. Um, there are still serial killers yeah. out there, I guess. Um, I will be curious to see how many like victims there were. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say too. Is we don't know how many more women he has done this to. That you know, if they're in like vacant lots and these like deserted places that no one ever goes to, like again, who knows how many? This like they're like there could be more out there. So yeah, super scary and super like. Uh, just when you think about serial killers now, because you're like, oh no, that was like a 70s, 80s thing. And you're like, mm, nope, it's still it's still happening. So I really yikes. do believe there's more serial killers out there than we think. And I think yeah. they can take advantage of the opioid epidemic that we have in the country. Because mm-hmm. um, we see a lot of time with police, um, you know, if someone, if it's in it, like looks like an overdose and this person has a history of drugs. Or even if they don't sometimes, they're kind of mm-hmm. like, it's an overdose open and open and closed which yeah i completely understand because you are seeing so many of them and all that but it's like there could be a lot of serial killers out there who are just having people overdose like yeah especially because 
people are more educated in like forensic science now and knowing mm-hmm. like what to do and what not to do to make sure that you don't get caught. So it's it's definitely pretty likely. Well, yeah. So now that we've said all that, um, so yeah, this is like a revisited episode. We originally kind of planned to take the week off, but Jacqueline and Courtney don't know how to take time off. What are you talking about? We don't know how to do that. <laughs> what? What is a vac? vacation no we still we still produce this stuff for you we, we can't just, we, we can't stop won't stop um so <laughs> um on november 9th we did release an episode about the signal mountain murders and so just as a little recap i know it's been a few weeks ago christmas has come and gone you completely just forgot everything that's ever existed <laughs> so three men richard mason kenneth griffith and Earl Smock were murdered after going on, like, for an ATV ride on Signal Mountain. Um, And a local property owner, Frank Castile, was convicted of their murders 10 years later. His conviction was overturned and he was given a new trial, but he was convicted again. If you do remember, it was, like, very quickly again. Um, Mm -hmm. After we released this episode, Frank's son, Franklin Trevor Castile, reached out to us to let us know that some of the information in our episode was wrong. So in our first episode, we had mentioned that Trevor wrote a book called Statement of Facts, State versus Castile, where he discussed some of the issues with the investigations and trials. We hadn't read that before the first episode, but now we did read it. And we have communicated via email with Trevor about information he felt we should share in an updated episode. So as we mentioned in our first episode, there was no hard evidence that Frank murdered these three men. So the main facts addressed in Trevor's book revolve around mishandling of forensic evidence and lack of evidence logs and documentation and changing and conflicting witness statements. So let's start with the night the three men took the ATVs out for a ride. So everything we read in our previous research and everything that was presented at trial stated the three men were headed to the blue hole to go for a swim. However, the missing person report and police reports from that time never mentioned the blue hole. Like, it just wasn't mentioned at all. Mm -hmm. And when Stanley Nixon was searching for the three men the next day and lost their tracks, he said he didn't know where else to look. So he's like, let me go look here. Um, And if it was true that the men had told their family they were going to the blue hole, Stanley Nixon would have searched in that direction, but he didn't. So there were also some strange circumstances surrounding the night they disappeared. So the Mason family said there was a full moon and that the men knew their way around and they'd be able to take care of themselves if something happened. However, records show that the moon wasn't even close to full that night and it would have been dark out by the time the family realized they weren't coming home. And Kenneth had also told his brother that he, Eric, and Paula planned to leave the next morning around 5 or 6 a.m. to head back to Florida. And Paula and her mom didn't contact Stanley Nixon until 9 a.m. the next morning. So if you know, like, your husband's planning to leave around 5 or 6 a.m. and he's not home, why are you waiting until 9 a.m. to contact someone about not coming home the night before? Yeah, like, that stuck out to me a lot. Stuck That is not a word. Um. (laughs) That took up to me. (laughs) (laughs) That stood that stood out to me a lot because 
I mean, it was kind of weird anyway that they would, like, wait so long. Because they're just like, oh, yeah, they didn't come home. Like, if they ran into trouble, they'll be fine. Like, I thought it was kind of weird. But it's like, not everyone's family dynamics or whatever are the same as mine. So maybe it wasn't weird to them. But if you know specifically, like, hey, we're leaving to, like, go back to our home, like, where we live tomorrow morning at, like, 5 or 6 a.m., and I don't call someone until 9 a.m. Like, something's clearly wrong by that point. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. you got to pack up your car. And, like, you don't just arrive back home at 5 if you're planning on leaving at 5. So it's, like, that that stood out to me a lot. That's weird to me, too, because, I mean, the drive from even Chattanooga to probably anywhere in Florida would maybe be a 5, 6-hour yeah. drive. Maybe 8, closer to 12. I don't know where. I don't remember <laughs> where in Florida they were going. I mean, depends where you were going, really. Yeah. Like, Um, but you know, if you're like, oh, we're leaving in the morning, but you're going to stay out all night and not get good sleep before we have to drive, like, that is a little strange. Um, Mm -hmm. and we don't really know what this information may mean, but it is very odd. And later at trial, Paula said they didn't know where to send someone, and that's why they didn't call someone to start searching that night. But she also said during the trial that their intended location was the blue hole. So if that's true she would have known where to send someone to search and could have called someone that night. So Mm -hmm. like we said, this is kind of like changing your story where you're like, I don't know where they were going. So I didn't call someone, but then now you're saying, I know they were going to the blue hole. So Mm -hmm. why didn't you contact someone? Yeah. Because like the police reports and missing persons and everything, like nothing says the blue hole, but then by the time the media and the trial, everything says blue hole. And it's like, when did this come about? Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll see probably when it did, but... <laughs> yeah. So the searches that were conducted were also problematic. First of all, during the initial searches, both volunteers and law enforcement were out because this was just a missing person case and they could use all available manpower. And members of media outlets were also on site during the time of the searches. Then one citizen stepped in blood at the gate and then covered it back up, which, as we all know... Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. Don't do this. Nope. <laughs> nope. Big no-no. Nope, nope. Um, and when asked why he did that, he said that's what they told him to do. Which, again, big no-no. Mm-hmm. Crime scene 101. Don't do that. <laughs> um, and even after this area was labeled a crime scene, citizens and media were still allowed as the area wasn't roped off. So you have a completely contaminated crime scene that mm-hmm. you can't get anything reliable from that. No, no. Citizens continued in searching efforts and even handled pieces of evidence themselves. Again, (laughs) crime scene 101, chain of custody. Mm -hmm. Can't do that. Law enforcement also had a leaky jug of blood at the scene that could have contaminated it. And a citizen was also the one that found the knife that Kenneth's brother identified as his. This, along with other pieces of evidence in this case, had no evidence log to document chain of custody, and pictures in local newspapers also show detectives picking up shotgun shells with their bare hands, clearly violating protocols for evidence collection. So, we already said there was, like, really not a lot of physical evidence, and now anything they could claim to be physical evidence is kind of contaminated Mm -hmm. at this scene. Yeah. When the ATVs were located, a grocery bag with a rain jacket was removed by a citizen and taken to the Mason home. It's unknown if there was something significant about that item, and if so, what that was. 
and the ATVs were also removed from the site where they were found without being tested first. So evidence could have been destroyed on the way to the lab. And there was also a handprint on one of the ATVs that was never identified, but it did not match Frank or his wife. And um, it should also really be noted, Frank had suffered a back injury in the past and had a bad back. Um, so if they're saying it was just him alone, like moving three ATVs kind of by yourself with a bad back would kind of almost be impossible. <laughs> like, Yeah, like that that's very hard for like someone who's in very good physical health to do, much less someone who like suffered like a debilitating back injury. Yeah. And there were a few leads in the initial search that were not followed up on. So they came upon some other men who were out camping or hanging out who were closer to locations of the ATVs than Castile's camp, but they were never questioned. And Stanley Nixon also said he found a group of people camping the morning he was out searching for the three men, but they were never interviewed either. So, eh, not important. All these potential people. <laughs> there was also a drug party going on at a buzzard point the night the men disappeared that wasn't investigated more thoroughly, and police seemed to quickly settle on Frank Castile as their main suspect and attempted to make the evidence fit the suspect instead of relying on the evidence to lead them to a suspect. Um, we've seen this before where they're like, we want it to be this person, let's find evidence that backs that up. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Castile was shown on local news stations just days after the bodies were found as a suspect, and community members also signed a petition for Castile to leave the area just 18 days after the murders. Yeah, so it's, like, pretty clear early on that people, like, wanted this to be him or, like, were convinced that it was him even before even before the mm-hmm. bodies were found and even before the investigation was complete. Yeah. So the bodies of the three men were moved before the medical examiner arrived to examine the bodies. Um, So again, this could have resulted in losing vital evidence or even cross-contamination if the bodies were not moved according to procedure, which really nothing was done according to procedure. So, Mm -hmm. Um, And during the investigation, two men were arrested for impersonating police officers and trying to interview citizens about this case. And documentation shows that someone tried to have these arrest records purged. So, someone out here impersonating the police, which is a felony, Mm -hmm. trying to interview people about this case, and nothing was done with it. So, it's like, meh, we don't consider that important. There's nothing sketchy about that. Nothing at all. People are just curious. No big deal. So, that's a big red flag. Also, bloody boots were brought into a repair shop shortly after the murders, And the worker at the shop contacted the police, but they never picked up the boots to investigate them. So again, pieces of evidence that they're choosing not to look into more. Yeah. And we did mention in our first episode that Cecil Hickman was another suspect. Um, He had gotten into altercations with Richard Mason in the past. He had also been known to pull guns on trespassers. And in our first episode, we said that Hickman's alibi was confirmed by a pastor in Kentucky and and a ticket to a tractor pull. Um, However, the ticket stub for the tractor pool was not able to be produced at trial. So no one's seen this, like, physical evidence, they say, of that he was there. Um, Mm -hmm. And newspapers from the area at the time also also showed that there was no tractor pool in that area of Kentucky that weekend. Um, There was a fair with a tractor pool a few weeks later, but not the weekend that the men went missing. Um, So they think that, like, the pastor and other people that we spoke to, like, either intentionally or... Um, unintentionally got their dates mixed up because they're like, no, there was no tractor pull that weekend. 
Yeah, and I mean, Cecil Hickman was a pretty good suspect. Um, yeah. And the alibi was really, like, the thing that cleared him. And the fact that that alibi mm-hmm. isn't an alibi at all is pretty important. Yeah. Um, so Frank and Linda. So I want to note here that we called Frank's wife Susie in our last episode because the source that we used referenced her as Susie, I guess, trying to conceal her identity. But um, her son and other sources have used her real name. So it is Linda. So I just want to make sure that's clear that that's the same person. Um, so Frank and Linda were arrested after Linda was found to have written letters to Sharon Marie Hill. Um, again, another note, we called her Sharon in the previous episode, um, but Trevor's book and other sources call her Marie, so looks like she probably went by Marie, but Sharon Marie was her name. Um, so Linda had written these letters to Marie, and um, Frank and Linda were arrested, and the search warrant was very specific in what could be taken from the home, and officers were only supposed to take letter-writing materials. Um, instead, 44 unrelated items were taken from the home. So when the woman who was on the side of the road with her husband and their dune buggy the night the men disappeared contacted police later, she actually said she did see a truck drive by several times as well as either an ATV or a motorcycle. Um, Because remember in the first episode, we said that she said that she didn't see anything significant. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's kind of the story that police told because they didn't look into this any further. But the the records of their interview with her does show that she was like, yeah, I did see a truck go by several times and some type of, like, you know, vehicle that was similar to an ATV or a motorcycle or something like that. Because remember, it was, like, a decade later when she actually talked to police. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, while Frank was in jail awaiting trial, the officers tried to deny his access to legal materials to work on his defense, which, as I'm sure everyone here knows, you are entitled to a defense and mm-hmm. to be able to participate in your own defense, and that's something that they have to give you. Um, so his son Trevor did reach out to someone that was high up in Nashville, and the officers were ordered to allow Frank access to his material. So he had to, like, step in and, like, get someone above these officers to be like, yeah, no, that's illegal, you can't do that. And it's like, how many more people are these officers doing it to who uh-huh. don't have someone who can step in for them, too? So it's like, this is yep. a huge problem. Absolutely. And in addition to problems with the investigation, there were also problems with the trials. So, like we said before, there was no physical evidence that tied Frank to these murders. And we also mentioned in our last episode that something that looked like the remains of a blue tarp was seen in Frank's house. Um, But no record of this item or any testing on this item exists. So, okay. And many items that the detective spoke about on the stand had no record photos or evidence log to go along with them um the detectives only referenced like the detective only referenced his memory and his own handwritten notes which didn't always have dates and could not be verified with anyone in the way that a proper chain of custody log could so he didn't have like the proper documentation he was like oh yeah i remember seeing this thing well do you have photos no well do you have like notes that someone else like wrote at the time or read at the time or Signed Mm -hmm. off on... Nope, nope, I just remember it. Okay. Okay. So, obviously, a large part of the trial included witness statements. So, we mentioned before that there were some conflicting statements, but that there were also a lot that were similar. And in his book, Trevor reviews interview records that demonstrate that some of the witness stories were changed along the way. 
and the state also had witness statements from individuals that contradicted the statements that were damning to Frank, but obviously those witnesses were not called at trial, at, you know, because they're not going to have people that don't support their theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the key statements that we mentioned in our first episode involved Frank holding a gun on people that trespassed on his property and, like, threatening to shoot them. Like, that was a big part of you know, why everyone said that it must be Frank because, oh, I go on Frank's property all the time and he's coming out threatening to shoot me. Um, But interviews show that many individuals claimed that Frank met them on his property holding a gun, but not pointing a gun and not referencing the gun while asking them to leave, which is a very different story. Like, if you just have a gun on you and you're like, this is Mm -hmm. private property, you need to leave, it's very different from like, I'm pointing my gun at you and telling you to leave. Very different scenarios here. Um, And a lot of the people that were interviewed said that that's what happened. And Frank's logbook also documented that he let some people continue on his property to swim in the blue hole and just asked that they bring back a bag of trash with them. And so, like, he made note of everyone that came onto his property and he was like, yeah, you can go swim, but, like, people are trashing it, so just bring back some trash with you. That'll be your payment for being able to go, you know? And I would like to include here, like, I did in the first episode kind of make a joke about him having a lot of acres of land and like why are you caring if it's like people going through Mm -hmm. um but the book did bring up how people were trashing the land and treating it horribly and like using drugs on the land and i didn't think about that that was a Mm -hmm. huge missight on my part i shouldn't have made a joke about that like i was thinking like someone's just like passing through like why are you that mad? Like, I wasn't thinking about, like, people, like, not treating the land well. So Mm -hmm. I do want to apologize for those comments because those were a little insensitive. I think we were thinking about it from, like, our own perspective of, oh, if, like, I accidentally or even on purpose Mm -hmm. trespass, but, like, oh, I'm just walking through this trail real quick to get to where I'm going versus people who are, like, like, driving their trucks and, like, you know, messing up the land and leaving trash and, like, doing all of these things. Like, I don't think we, like thought of it that way um and I guess I was thinking like I wasn't fully understanding like the blue hole was like on his property mm -hmm. like I thought it was like a shortcut you know what I mean like I think that was just kind of an oversight on my part Mm -hmm. of just being like oh they're just like slowly creeping in but it's like no they're like going they're trashing it yeah and I've seen that all the time I just wasn't thinking about it from that Mm -hmm. perspective yeah Um, And none of the individuals that were allowed onto the property or who stated that the gun was present but not used in a threatening manner were were witnesses at the trial. So none of these people were called to say that that's their experience with Frank. Um, And then Trevor makes a really good point in his book that if all of these people had been threatened by Frank holding a gun, why are there no police reports about this happening? Like, why did no one call the police after they left and they're like, "Um, this guy just like held a gun on me because I accidentally went on his property? You know, mm-hmm. um, during and after, and, and not that it was um, always accidental. So, I mean, I'm sure there were people that like purposefully went on his property, you know, realizing that it was private yeah. property. But, you know, either you're in the wrong or you're going to call police. Or it, it just doesn't really make sense. Yeah. Um, during and after Frank's second trial, there was no possibility to have him exonerated by DNA evidence because so much of the evidence in the case had been destroyed. Um, So, like we said, some of it was destroyed in the process of the investigation just by, like, poor collection methods. Um, And other stuff was just destroyed after his conviction. Because they're like, well, we don't need this anymore. Let's just burn it. Okay. Um, 
So if this evidence had been preserved, newer DNA testing may have been able to provide some answers that weren't available decades before, as we've seen with a lot of people who have been exonerated, you know, in recent years. Um, Trevor also wants to say that he understands that people still think his father is guilty, but that there is so much misinformation out there that if you do think that, you should have all the correct facts in order to come to that conclusion. So come to whatever conclusion you want to, but make sure you're not relying on completely wrong information to come to that conclusion. Um, Trevor also did an amazing interview with Wine, Dine, and Storytime. Um, the episode is called Statement of Fact, and we do really recommend that you listen to it. Um, both of us listened to it as well as reading his book, and he talks a lot about some of the things that he discusses in his book, um, but it really goes into a lot of detail and discusses with them the first episode that they did as well, which was very similar to our episode because... Unfortunately, you know, Trevor acknowledges that there's a lot of wrong information that's out there. So when you're going to collect that information, that's what you end up with. Um, Yeah, he was very nice and respectful and was like, he's like, I understand. Like, there's just miss Like, if you go off the media sites, there's a ton of misinformation. And he's like, Mm -hmm. you know, he self-published his book. He was like, Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to, like, get information out there. You know, Um, unfortunately, Frank is dead. And so Mm -hmm. if he is somehow exonerated it will be you know after death like it he's not going to get any time Mm -hmm. back um but you know trevor is just saying like i just want people to know the true facts of this case if you want to keep thinking he's guilty okay whatever i just want you to know the true facts of this case Mm mm-hmm And he did put a lot of time and effort into his book. Um, So it does, like we said, it does go into interviews and trial transcripts and, you know, all of these documents. It's not just, Mm -hmm. you know, here are my, like, opinions and my, like, um, memories and experience. It really is, like, here are the documents and the the facts in this case. Um, Yeah, because, I mean, we definitely probably should have read the book before we released it. Yeah, absolutely. Both of us um, in previous cases have had experiences where sometimes people close to the case write books and it's not necessarily fact. It's Mm -hmm. more like feelings and kind of grasping at straws. And so I think sometimes we're like, oh, like they wrote a book, but, you know, is it worth the time and research to, Mm -hmm. you know, read the book? Um, So I think sometimes we get a little burnt out on that when we see books like this um but his book it was completely different it was nothing like yeah. that it was very well put together very factual very well done mm-hmm. yeah so that is our take two signal mountain murders revisited um i mean i don't know We don't know who could have done this. We don't know what the motives were. We do know, and as we said before, there's really not any evidence to say that it was Frank. Um, And I do think we both see a lot now the things that were mishandled that a lot of it points away from Frank at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we also kind of said, like, it doesn't seem like he got a fair trial. Like, whether he did it or not. Like, there was no physical evidence. Mm -hmm. And obviously, especially after reading... Trevor's book, it was a lot of hearsay and just kind mm-hmm. of not a fair trial, fair trial at all. So I definitely think even if he did it, I'm not saying mm-hmm. he did or didn't, the trial was not fair. Like you can't yeah. think the trial was fair. Like even, like you said, not saying he did it, but if he did, he still should not have been convicted because 
like there was no like cause, because there was so much reasonable doubt which we've talked mm-hmm. about in other cases like even if like yeah i think this person probably did it like if you have reasonable doubt you cannot convict that person like i mean you do but you're not supposed to that's not the way that our system is supposed to work so whatever your you know opinions of the case are like trevor said he just wants to make sure that the correct information is out there so that whatever conclusion you come to is based on the facts and not the misinformation that's spread about this case. And he did say, um, before us wanting to take a look into this, only the wine, dine and story time have ever listened to him about when this story was covered. And Mm -hmm. I know a few podcasts who have. Um, so I do feel sorry for him that he is so nice and just trying to reach out and be like hey there's some misinformation here and he's just being completely ignored so Mm -hmm. um please go listen to that interview because it's very very good um it's very well very well done yes it's a very very good interview um i think he said he's also reached out to like wikipedia pages and you know things like that Mm -hmm. that is like wrong information and again we know how polite he was when he reached out to us it's not like he's like you know coming in cussing at you like how dare you and it's like i'm just gonna ignore that like he's very polite and hey you should just know that some of these things are wrong and as we've always said please let us know if we're wrong because Mm -hmm. we can only do the amount of research that we can do with the resources that we have available so if we get things wrong we always want you to let us know that and if this happens again we will definitely do another revisited episode with whatever that may be and yeah um and at the end of the day we do want to remember the three victims uh richard mason Mm -hmm. kenneth griffith and earl smock um unfortunately they did lose their lives um and frank castile could also possibly be a victim of an Mm -hmm. in just criminal justice system um but we don't want it to seem like we're taking away from the victims either because three men did lose their lives Mm -hmm. and their families were impacted um so again we do just want to remember them yes absolutely so um that being said courtney what is your perk of the week so my perk of the week we are technically after christmas now but i'm going to be bringing up christmas sorry guys um same (laughs) um (laughs) me too (laughs) But um, this week, uh, me and my sister did do our annual Christmas cookies. So mm-hmm. it's been a long tradition at this point. Um, and I don't know what we did. I really don't. But they were the best cookies we had done. Yum. Like taste-wise, delicious. Do you, we nailed it on this one. Do you, do you have some left? Are you, are you bringing some tomorrow when you, when you come see me? Literally, Ashlyn and I were texting today, like, I wish we'd done that second batch so there were more cookies, because I literally ate them in two days. Like, I couldn't stay out of them. I mean, Um, you have to eat them while they're, like, fresh. I mean, you can't just, like, wait, and then they're not going to be as good. So you just have to eat them all in one sitting, obviously. Yeah, but we found, like, the perfect cookie recipe where, like, when we do the cookie cutters, they don't get too big. And now, you know, my nephew's old enough where he can start decorating Mm -hmm. cookies. And I think he's doing better than me, honestly. (laughs) Um, He had to make Kevin a cookie and Mimi and Grandpa a cookie. He had to make everyone a cookie and talk about it. Um, (laughs) uh, Amelia ate the cookies. I don't really think she uh, she didn't decorate too much. She's like, <laughs> she I'm just, just kind of wanted to eat I'm it. I'm just here for the food. I mean, same, Amelia. Like, I, I feel you. Like, I'm not here to, like, if you make anything, I'm just going to, like, eat them. Thanks. Yeah, if you look at the pictures, like, we took, I'm pretty sure she has a cookie in her mouth, like, in all of them. Like, she's smiling in maybe two, <laughs> but the rest just has this little cookie right there. I like it. Um, 
But that's always a fun tradition that we get to keep up. Mm -hmm. Usually Katie is there, but Katie does live quite far away. And so it is very hard for her to come in. But we always remember her in spirit (laughs) when we make our cookies. So that is my perk of the week. Jacqueline, what is your perk of the week? So my perk of the week is that... On the day we are recording this, which is December 19th, I'm officially finished with my Christmas shopping, like six days before Christmas. So I'm pretty nice. I'm pretty proud of myself. I do, as we talked about before, I do tend to procrastinate with my Christmas shopping. So I do have everything purchased. There are a few things might arrive after Christmas, but like I bought them on time. So that's all that counts, right? <laughs> um, and I have about like half of my wrapping done. So I still have to finish wrapping a few things um but I did go buy some tissue paper today so I can do some Mm -hmm. very easy I got a whole bunch of baby shower bags left so if you're hearing this and you got a Christmas present from me it was probably in a baby shower bag sorry but it's a lot easier so I'm just gonna put that (laughs) tissue paper in that baby shower bag with your Christmas gift and off you go done finished I'm excited yeah I'm done with my Christmas shopping thankfully um and I think I just got everything wrapped um, if I put, if I wrapped it and didn't put it in a gift bag, no, I didn't. I know it looks like <laughs> trash. I'm sorry. I suck at it. Same. Um, I mean, it's not terrible, but it's just not great. Especially because my dad and my sister are like pro gift wrappers. Mm-hmm. Like it is literally so beautiful and precise. Yep. And I get little like crinkles and bumps and... I get annoyed. Anyway. My mom's the same but. way where she like <laughs> folded everything like exactly perfect and it was like boop, boop, boop. But then also my problem is I'm too lazy to like get a box to put things in. So I will just wrap whatever the item is. <laughs> so. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes it hard. <laughs> no, I was, before we came up here to record, like Kevin, <laughs> Kevin was wrapping and I was just like, <laughs> I probably wrap like you, Kevin. I was like, do you, do you want some tips? And he was like, I got it. And I'm like okay and like it is funny because like i wrapped like his gift to my mom Mm -hmm. wait my (laughs) gift to his mom (laughs) somebody's gift to somebody's someone's mother um so like i I printed out a picture of us from the bridal shower and Mm -hmm. put it in one of the frames that was like at the bridal shower so she could have that um and so like mine like i wrapped it and i put a bow and i put the little sticker that says like to so-and-so from so-and-so and And, like kevin wrapped his and got a sharpie and just wrote sheila (laughs) Kevin, he was like, I'm with you, Kevin. Okay. This year, this is what I've always done. This year I bought gift tags for the first time in, I don't know, like six years or so. So I'm pretty proud of myself. But in the last like six years, I would pull a Kevin and I would just like, I mean, if it's like a mixing bowl, I'm just wrapping papers going around that mixing bowl and your name's (laughs) going on in a Sharpie. Yeah. Done. That's it. You're going to unwrap it anyway. Who cares what the wrapping looks like? You know? That is exactly what Kevin said. Because I was like, do you, I was like, do you want some advice? Like, you can fold it and make it a little bit easier. And he was like, he's just going to rip it anyway. And I was like, I mean, fair point. I don't, exactly. I don't really care. Exactly. I'm, and not my, not my gift. I don't care. <laughs> um, but I also got a lot of gift bags. And I ran out of tape last night. So I went to Dollar Tree and just bought a bunch more <laughs> gift bags so that I could do less wrapping. Perfect. That is the way to do it. So now that we've told you all about our Christmas preparedness or not or wrapping and you know all the drills if you want to tell us about all of those things you can find us on instagram at caffeinated crimes pod we are on twitter at caff crimes pod that's c-a-f-f crimes pod we are on facebook at caffeinated crimes podcast 
You can email us at caffeinatedcrimespod at gmail.com if you want to tell us about things that we've gotten wrong in other episodes because we are happy to look into it and correct them if the information is accurate. Um, if you feel so inclined and you have a little bit of money, mo- <laughs> if you got a little bit of money, <laughs> if you feel so inclined and you have a little bit of money you want to throw our way, you can do so at patreon.com slash caffeinated crimes where you can get some bonus episodes where you can hang out with us virtually and get some gifts and some stickers and pins and you know the drill there's all kinds of fun goodies so head on over there if that's something you are able and willing to do and we're still doing our apple podcast giveaway it is past christmas and i don't think we hit it but that's okay (laughs) We still have New Year's and all of 2022, which who knows what it will make. Who knows what it'll bring. We'll see. Anyway. Um, but uh, if you go to Apple Podcast, um, you can go to our name and you can leave us a review. Five stars, preferably. If you give us two, you will not be entered. <laughs> Little buddy, can't do that. Um, and if you could just send a picture of it before you submit it or put something in there that it is clear that it's you um once we get to 50 we will pick someone and they'll get a pin a sticker and a 10 dollar gift card to the coffee shop of their choice it could be a chain it could be local it could be i don't give a shit whatever you want (laughs) um but yeah in the meantime go have a cup of coffee and don't commit a crime